uh, on the screen. So it is to us as an expert on the book of First Peter. And so I told him, well, you get to get your Bible out and look at Second Peter because I won't post first in Second Peter. <laughs> uh, by the way, if you were wondering, we do have three seats right in the very front if you'd like to come sit in the front and have a table. So anyway, um, he attended Pepperdine for his undergraduate studies and his Master's of Divinity Studies. Uh, grew up in Colorado Springs before attending Pepperdine. He then moved to Texas to go to Baylor, got his Ph.D. there completing in 2011, and then he moved to ACU, Abilene, and has lived there ever since. He has worked in churches in Malibu, Waco, and Abilene. Uh, he has been a favorite Bible professor of students at ACU. He is married to Tolly. They have three children. Unfortunately, they couldn't come too. They're a little busy, as kids tend to be sometimes. And so, Cliff, come and talk to us about First Peter. I'm looking forward to this. And let's pray together real quick. Dear God, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for your incredible love for us and for the way you, that you walk with us each and every day. And Father, I thank you for uh, Dr. Barbaric's willingness to come down and to speak with us and to share some of his knowledge with us about uh, First and Second Peter. I pray, Lord, that uh, as we open up our Bibles, as we look at these words uh, that Peter shared with us so many years ago, I pray, Father, that we can um, read carefully, that we can understand what you're saying to us today. Thank you, Father, for your son, Jesus, who's made all this possible. Thank you, Father, for the incredible love and grace and mercy that we live in today. It's through your son we pray. Amen. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for the, the invitation to come and, and be with you over the next few days. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, one of the things uh, that Doug did not mention, um, but, which is fine, right, is that when I, while I was at Baylor uh, studying uh, for my Ph.D. in New Testament, what I did my, my uh, dissertation on was First Peter. So I'm sorry. I guess I should apologize. Right? I spent a lot of time digging into 1 Peter, asking questions about this letter that probably none of you are all that concerned about. And so my goal today is to stay away from some of that minutia that I found so infinitely interesting as a Ph.D. student at, at Baylor and try to step back and, and, and take some time for us to see if we can get a sense of the whole of what's happening with 1 Peter and then also 2 Peter. Right? So I'm excited about the opportunity to spend some time with that shorter but very interesting letter uh, tomorrow as we dig into that. Uh, my goal for our time here really is hopefully to provide an introduction to both of these letters because I understand that you're going to be spending a lot more time with both First and Second Peter throughout the rest of, of this, uh, this, this spring. And so to kind of sit and, and go through verse by verse through First Peter and Second Peter is something we could do and learn from. But, but then I'd worry it would be redundant to what you're going to go do later in your Bible classes. So instead, we'll take some time to get a sense of the whole, right, and then maybe pick a few topics from each of them that we can dig into a little bit more deeply. And, and that, I hope, will give you some ways of thinking about these letters that you can continue to work with and continue to chew on as you spend time in smaller groups in your Bible classes studying these letters even more closely. So that, that's, that's some of what my goal is as we dive into things. Uh, I'm glad that you as a church are taking some time to study First Peter and Second Peter. Uh, First Peter, for a long time, uh, ha has not received much attention uh, in biblical scholarship, 
And evidently not much in churches either. Doug has told me that once he announced that he'd be studying 1 Peter and 2 Peter here, several of you have come up to him and said, I don't know that we've ever worked through this letter before. Right? That's, that's not uncommon. Right? For some reason, maybe because it's there in the, near the back of the New Testament, it, it gets left out. One, one scholar even referred to 1 Peter as the exegetical stepchild of the New Testament. <laughs> Ouch. Right? Just kind of forgotten. Right, and Second Peter might be even worse, right, if we really want to be honest in terms of how much time people spend studying these letters. So we're going to get a chance to, to dig into some, some things that, that are worth our time. Right, even though uh, maybe in scholarship and in church life we haven't spent as much time focused on First Peter and Second Peter, especially First Peter, uh, is, is a beautiful writing uh, that, that presents the gospel, I think, in some really compelling ways. In fact, Martin Luther, right, who loved Paul and loved Romans, was also thought very highly of First Peter. All right, for, for, for Luther, if, you know, if you ask him the question, you know, what biblical book would you want with you if you were on a desert island and had, and had none, right? You had, had to choose one. He would have gone with Romans first. That was his favorite, right? But I think First Peter would have been right up there as well. For him, it communicated the entire gospel. And so it's one of, those, one of those writings that has a lot to offer us. And so I'm excited right, that we have some time to study it together. Uh, both of these writings that we're going to be looking at, both of these compositions are letters and so part of what we'll need to think through is how do we read letters well if we're going to interpret them? How do we hear them well if we're going to interpret them? And one of the places I always begin if I'm thinking about letters, and this is true for other compositions as well, by the way, but it's really easy to see with letters, is that these are what we might call occasional documents. Okay? And when I say that, I don't mean that they are written every once in a while. I, I realize you could probably take occasional to mean that. What I mean is that they are written for a specific occasion. Right? That's how letters work. We, we understand that. That's how they work now. Right? If we want to communicate in a letter, it's because we've got a specific goal in mind that we want to communicate to a specific person who's going through some specific situation in their life. Right? Uh, we don't just kind of sit down and think, I think I want to write everything I know about faith, and we put that in a letter form. No, right? that's, not, that's not what letters do. Letters have an occasion. They have an author who's, can, who's writing to a specific audience for a specific reason. And if we're going to understand these letters well, if we're going to hear them well, we have to have, to have some sort of sense of what is that occasion, right? so we can understand why the letter's doing some of the things that it's doing. Right? If we don't, then uh, I think we open ourselves to possible misinterpretations right, of, of what we're looking at. Because letters not only are occasional, but they're also part of an ongoing relationship between whoever the author is and whoever the audience is. These people know each other already. This is not a letter of introduction. They've had a history together. Right? There's things that they ha share in common, knowledge they share in common, experiences they share in common. And this letter is kind of one, one little slice of that relationship in time. Right? And so having a sense of that ongoing relationship helps us understand what, what, how the letter's functioning. Right? To not have a sense of that is almost like listening to one side of a phone call right? and thinking we could understand exactly what's going on. I think, is it, is it an Allstate commercial that ran a few years ago? Great commercial where the husband's downstairs talking on the phone, right, late at night, and his wife walks downstairs. Is this ringing any bells yet? You know, she walks downstairs, and she assumes, of course, right, he's on the phone with a mistress maybe or something, right, and completely misunderstands his conversation that he's having. He's talking to his insurance agent, right? And, and, but, but because she didn't have the sense of, the, you know, the both sides here, the occasion, she misunderstood what he was saying. Right? And I think something analogous can happen if we don't take some time to think through what is the occasion for the writings that we're looking at, right? which again involves thinking about who the author is, what's going on with the author, who's the audience, what's happening with them, what's, what's the reason 
that this particular letter was written. And with that in mind, then we can interpret the rest through that grid. And so that's what I want to jump in with first, is thinking through some of those questions as we go through today. So, right, the first one would be, all right, who, who's the author? In some, some ways, that's an easy question to answer with letters, thankfully. But there's other kind of questions you might ask. Where is the author? Right? What's going on with the author? What, what can we know about this kind of thing? So if you're reading an ancient letter and you want to know who the author is, right, where do you look? At the very beginning, right? Now, when we write letters, where do we sign our names? Right down at the end. But that's not how they do it in, in ancient customs. So they begin, right, with, with naming the sender and the sendees right there at the beginning. So we can always go to a letter and find out uh, the, the, the purported author of the letter right away. So if we check 1 1 of 1 Peter, we're going to work with 1 Peter today. Right, what, what do we see there? Right, Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So we're told something about who is writing, right, and who he's writing to right away. Right, we're going to come back and, and unpack some of that as, as we go through. Do we know anything more about the author from, from the letter itself? Those are the things, the things that the letter tells us about what's going on. Right, we could go back and we could look at other stories about Peter, right, and maybe fill out some details. But is there anything else that the letter itself indicates us into, indicates to us about who this is? Right, and we do see some other things uh, if if we keep reading. Not here at the beginning. Doesn't say much more about himself at the beginning, other than he's an apostle, one who is sent right, by Jesus Christ. So we we learn that about him. But if we go and flip towards the end, he he tells us a little bit more about himself in this letter. Right, at the very beginning of chapter five, in verse one. Right, he says, now as an elder myself. Right, so not only does he have the title of apostle, he also considers himself an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Right, so we're learning something about him. He's an apostle. He's an elder. He's somebody who says, I have witnessed the sufferings of Christ. I have witnessed, probably here in, in view, the crucifixion, his death. Right, that's something that's actually pretty important in 1 Peter. There's going to be a lot that we're going to hear about the suffering of Christ in this letter, right? And that's one of the things that he wants, the author wants to emphasize about himself, right? And what he chooses to reveal about himself or, or emphasize to his audience. I saw Christ suffer. I was a witness of these things, right? So we've got Peter, an apostle, an elder, and, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. What, do we know anything else about him? Like maybe where he is, right? Or, who, or who's with him when he's writing? I think one thing that, that we don't often think about is that ancient letters were corporate compositions, Right? If you were to write a letter, my guess is you'd probably go off by yourself somewhere, sit down and write it out, right? Or maybe type it out if you're, if you're sending an email or something like that. But you don't do it in conversation with somebody else, right? And so when we think about letters being written in the New Testament, that's often what we think, right? We project how we write letters back onto how they must have been written in the ancient world. Well, that's, that's not how they were written, right? They were written orally in groups, right? So Peter here would be speaking out loud, Right, working through what he wants to communicate to his audience, and there would be others, right, conversing with him about what he, that he's wanting to say. There might be some others who are there writing things down. And so when we imagine kind of how these are put together, we need to not think of an individual by himself writing this, but rather think of a group of coworkers working in some area wanting to send this message to the audience that they're writing to. So who, who is there with him? Right? If we look at the very end, this is always a good place to go find who's with somebody. Right? When, you, when we're thinking about letters, we go to the very end, right, and check the last few verses, we get some information about this, too. 
both about kind of who is with Peter as he's writing and, and where he might be when he writes this. Right? He tells us in verse 12, Through Silvanus, whom I consider a faithful brother, I have written this short letter to encourage you and testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Your sister church in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Right? Greet one another with a kiss of love. So we're told he's with two people, right? at least. Right? He names these two. Mark who probably most think is the John Mark that we hear about in other places in the New Testament, maybe the book of Acts. And Silvanus is another way of talking about a person named Silas who also appears in the book of Acts. He's somebody who's got two different names, kind of like Paul. We'll go back and forth between Saul and Paul, depending on what region he's in. If he's back kind of home in Palestine, he goes by Saul. If he's at other places of the Roman Empire, he goes by Paul. Silvanus had kind of the same thing going on. He was Silas in more Palestinian areas, right, back home in Jerusalem. And as he goes out into other parts of the Roman Empire, he adopts a more Latin version of his name, Silvanus, right? So the Silvanus named here is probably Silas, who who we hear about in other places in the New Testament. And Mark is probably the John Mark that we hear about in other places. All right, now we're told, right, he tells us that he's writing through Silvanus. Okay, what does that mean? Well, again, we've got to have in mind that this is a corporate process that's happening when this letter is composed. It's not... Peter off by himself, right? It's a group of people. And so Mark's there, Silvanus is there, right? He says he's writing through him. And there's typically two ways that people understand that language to say that he's writing through Silvanus. One possibility is that Silvanus is his scribe. And so if Peter is speaking this out loud, right, and, it's, be, and they're, they're, he, they're, it's being heard, right? Someone's got to record that so they can be taken and then spoken out loud again for the audience. Well, that's maybe the role that Silvanus has. Uh, in, in the composition of this letter, right? So through him, right? He's the one that's described. So that's one possibility. Another, and maybe a more likely possibility, is that Silvanus is the letter carrier. Because if you go back and look uh, in, say, Acts 15, for example, when the church sends a letter to Antioch. So in Acts 15, the church in Jerusalem sends a letter to the church in Antioch. They send it through, we're told. Interestingly enough, Silas, the same person listed here, along with a couple other people from the church in Jerusalem. Right? They send this letter. So that language, through someone, right? to write a letter through someone, in other places in the New Testament refers to the people who are carrying the letter. Right? So I don't know that it has to be one of those. Maybe it's both right? that, that Silvanus is doing. But could be the scribe. Maybe more likely he's the one who's going to carry the letter on behalf of Peter and present it. And this is a very important person in the, in the, the composition of ancient letters. Because if you, you know, speak it out loud and it's recorded, right, the goal is to have that oral event, right, the letter being heard, to have that recreated for the audience. Okay? This, this is a little bit different for us. We live in a very print-dominant culture. If something's important to us, we write it down, right, and we read it silently. Right? That's, not, that's not the culture in which they live. They live in an oral culture. If something's important, it's told out loud and heard. So Peter's telling it out loud, it's being recorded, but the goal is to have it told out loud again on the other end for the audience, and the letter carrier is the one who's responsible for making that happen. Right? So it serves a crucial role to hear it and know what was meant to be communicated from Peter and then kind of bring that back to life for the audience as it's, as it's taken to them, right? speaking it to them. So that, that may be the kind of role that Silvanus is taking here uh, by the, that, that's indicated when we're told that the letter is written through Silvanus. Right? And then we've got John Mark, who he mentions as his son, Right? Probably not a literal designation, but more a reference to his son in the faith, right? if, it's, if it's the John Mark that we know of. And we have traditions about John Mark and Peter traveling together as a missionary team. 
like Paul and Barnabas did, right, or Paul and Timothy. Right? That's often how uh, the missionaries would do their work, and we have some other traditions right, from, from other early Christian writers about Peter and John Mark spending time together, and particularly spending time together in the city of Rome. Which leads me to kind of the next thing here. We're told who's with him, and he gives us a hint about where he is, right? But it's a coded hint. Because what does he say, right? He, he sends some greetings not only from, from John, uh, or, or sorry, from, from, yeah, from, from Mark, but he also says, who, who else greets the churches that he's writing to, right? Yeah, your sister church in Babylon, it might, it might be translated. Uh, there's, there's different ways that, that, that uh, English translations translate that phrase. I might say your fellow elect, in Babylon, right? But he's, there's people in Babylon, right, that are also sending their greetings. So, so where is he if he's sending greetings from Babylon, right? Because there's not a Babylon that exists at this point in history, and so Rome, right, is often thought as what, what, what's meant here, right? Babylon is code for Rome. And why, why would that be? How, why would Rome, right, why would Babylon rather be the code for, for Rome? Well, of course, you have to know some about kind of how Babylon functions in the imagination of people who have lived as, as the chosen people, as Israel. Right? Babylon was the, the, the uh, occupying force right, that came in, conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, right, and then moved the people off into exile in Babylon. Right? Babylon doesn't exist anymore in the time of, of Jesus and, and, and the, the first apostles, but there is an occupying force in Palestine, and it's Rome. And, of course, by the 70s anyway, right, by 70, Rome, like Babylon, is going to destroy the temple. Right? So there's some resonances between Babylon and Rome, which is why some might think that that's what we're referring to here when we're referring to Babylon. That's code for Rome. Right? And, again, that fits with what we know. Peter, John, Mark, together in Rome, right, sending this, this correspondence out. So that gives us some picture of what's going on here. Right? Uh, if we... If we um, Build in some pieces of what we know from, from early Christian traditions about what happened to Peter. Uh, his death, the traditions about his death, indicated that he is uh, executed, crucified upside down, in Rome, uh, when Nero is the, the emperor. And so if he's in Rome with John Mark, right, maybe this is getting toward that point, right, as he's facing, start, starting, beginning to face his own death. Second Peter uh, indicates that kind of setting. Right? And we'll see some evidence in Second Peter that he expects the end is soon for him. Right? And that's why he's writing that particular letter at that particular time. All right, so, um, so we got the author, right, um, th uh, who's uh, writing to them, Peter, an elder and witness of Christ's sufferings. Right? We've got the end that tells us Sylvanus is with them, as well as Mark. Right? And then the big question is, right, if, he's writing to them, if he's writing from Rome with these people, who is he writing to? Right? Who's the audience? That, that he's writing to. And we already saw at the beginning a long list of places that he's writing to. So this is a little bit different than a Pauline letter where Paul typically addresses things to a, a single individual or maybe a single city, right, a region, so a church, right? So he's writing to the Romans, right? The church is in Rome. Or he's writing to the Philippians, the church is in Philippi. Or he's writing to Timothy, right, or Titus. So he has more focused audiences here. We get a pretty long list of places, right? If you go back to verse 1, right, we're told, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, we get a long list of places, and we have uh, a certain term that's used to describe this audience, right? They are the exiles in the dispersion, is how he calls, is, is how he refers to them. What does that mean, right, to refer to them as exiles in the dispersion, or, or the exiles in the diaspora? Well, there's a couple different ways that we, that, that we can understand that. 
Right? You, might come, you might bump into some different interpretations as you read through materials on 1 Peter. Right? But part of what we need to decide is, are we talking about literal Jews or are we talking about Gentiles? In which case, the language of them being exiles in the diaspora would be more metaphorical than literal. Right? So if it's literal, right, it's Jews who are living outside of Palestine. Right? So, if, so if you have Jews who are not living in and around Judea and Jerusalem, that area, if they are living outside of that area, other parts of the Roman Empire, right, that's in the diaspora, that's in the dispersion. And so one way to understand what's happening here is that Peter is writing to fellow Jews who are living outside of Palestine. It's also possible, right, that he's, he's writing to Gentiles, right? But if he's writing to Gentiles, then the language of the diaspora and exiles is not literal, it's more metaphorical, right? He's writing to people who find themselves in a situation that feels like exile because of their following of Jesus as Messiah, right? And so we kind of have to look and maybe in other places in the letter, right? Does this sound like a Jewish audience or does this sound like a Gentile audience? All right, so let's, let's, let's look at a couple of places Right, and see what we see here that might give us some, some clues. Right, in 114, he's talking about them. Right, like obedient children, he says, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Right, instead, as he is holy, you also be holy. So don't be like your former ways of ignorance. Does that sound like the way you would talk to Jews, your fellow Jews, or ways you might talk to Gentiles? Right? Or if we look ahead, a couple verses in, in verse 18. You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Right? The, the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Right? Would you talk that way to Jews or would you talk that way to Gentiles? Right? What does it sound like to you? Or maybe if we jump ahead to 4.3, right? a passage that we, we get a little window into the kinds of things that are happening to this audience. You have already spent enough time, he says, doing what the Gentiles like to do. Living in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, rebels, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you no longer join them in the same excesses of dissipation. And so they blaspheme. Right? So writing to these people, they are uh, being maligned because they have withdrawn from certain associations and behaviors that they used to participate in. Right? Does it sound like writing to Jews or maybe writing to Gentiles? I think you can, you can go either way, right? And maybe you want to you hold this conclusion with a light hand, right? And kind of just spend some time with the letter and see what you decide. I think that, that uh, most of the interpreters I read think that sounds more like he's writing to Gentiles, right? To talk about kind of your former way of I ignorance, the futile ways of your forefathers, not that you used to do these things, but you've changed, right? He's writing to people uh, who have been part of these Gentile associations, right? Have lived lives with their, their neighbors in the towns where they are, but have changed their behavior, have changed their lives because of their following of Jesus, and that has having some repercussions, right? And that's a way to maybe understand what's happening. So in that case, we think of the exiles and the dispersion as, a, as metaphorical. They're Gentiles, maybe largely, who find themselves in, a, in an experience that feels like exile because uh, of changes that have happened when they turn to follow Jesus. Right. The other thing is we're told some precise places that they are, right? So I'm going to bring up a map here and show you some of the, the areas that are, that are listed. So we get, a, we get a names of regions in Asia Minor, right? So that landmass there is Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey. And if you notice, right, if you're comparing the, the names of the, uh, the regions with the way they're ordered in 1 Peter, you almost notice a circular movement. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 
Right? So he's covering this whole area, right into this whole area, uh, but almost in, 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 if you kind of trace the order, it, it completes a little circle through Asia Minor. And so many think that that, that gives us maybe the, the path that the letter carrier, maybe Sylvanus, took. Right? He, he sails in from Rome, lands there in the north part of Asia Minor, and Pontus starts there, circulates throughout the region, taking this letter and presenting it in all the communities that Peter wants to communicate to, gets back to basically where he started, hops in a boat, heads back to Rome to meet up with Peter and report on how things went. Right, and so you get, you get this whole region as the area that, that Peter has in mind as he's writing to these communities. All right, so that, that gives us some of the information about uh, kind of the nuts and bolts of, of who's writing, who's he writing to. But really, if we want to be sensitive to what's going on, why is it being written, we have to hear the letter and just listen. What's the situation? What seems to be happening that's driving the author to communicate to these communities? And so that's, that's what I want us to do here. Right, is have a chance to hear the letter and just say and just kind of notice, um, what do we see? What seems to be happening? What's driving Peter to write to these communities? And, and, and what is he trying to accomplish with, with this particular letter? Uh, again, I've said when we imagine kind of how ancient letters were composed and shared, they're composed in an oral process. They are written down, right? And that written form serves kind of as a, a transcript so that they can be told aloud again on the other end. Right? That's, that's the goal. Uh, and uh, I think most of the ancient, the, most of the, the New Testament writings and Old Testament writings that we have would have been experienced in this way in the ancient world. People hearing them aloud rather than reading them silently to themselves. Because the vast majority of people were illiterate. Right? They couldn't read. The materials are expensive, so you don't have lots of copies of these things in a, in a kind of written or printed form. And so the way that people are going to hear and experience these things is by someone telling it to them aloud. And because of the nature of the materials, the, the manuscripts that they're working with and the way they would write on those manuscripts to preserve space right, and, and, and maximize efficiency, they would have been very hard to, uh, to sight read aloud. And so it's most likely that people heard other people tell these from the heart. Right, that's how they would have heard the Gospels, people telling these stories from the heart. That's how they would have heard these letters, I think. The letter carrier who's intimately familiar with the letter, its composition process, and has been preparing to share it, goes up and tells it from the heart. And then, right, that's how people receive it and then share it with others. Uh, that's not how we typically experience Scripture now, right? Again, we live in a print culture. We experience it by looking at words on a page, right? Maybe reading it silently to ourselves somewhere. If we hear it aloud, we often hear it read like it's words on a page, Right? But we don't ever hear it or experience it as something that is told from somebody. Right? And, and I think right, that we miss out when we don't do that. If they're composed to be heard, right, then maybe we possibly miss something if the only way that we experience them, or at least the primary way that we experience them, is by reading text on a page. Right? So what, what I want to do right, with, with the time that we have here in this session is for you to be able to hear First Peter. Right? So uh, I'm, I'm going to give it a shot here right? to tell you First Peter from my heart. Right? And what I want you to do with this time right, is you don't need your Bibles open right, to kind of go through and see if I make mistakes, because I will. Okay? So you don't have to worry about that. Also, I'll, I'll be telling it from the English Standard Version, which may not be the version that you have, right? And so it might, it might cause some confusion. So you can, I'd say, shut your Bibles for now, right? We're going to have plenty of time to look closely at 1 Peter as we go through things. But you might want to have open your notebooks to that section where you can write some notes. Because uh, you do want to note, like, what catches your attention as you hear it. 
right? And there might be different things that capture your attention when you hear it than when you read it. So, I, so I will, I, I'm not gonna, it's not going to distract me or bother me if I see you writing out there. I'm going to assume you're not writing down, Cliff made a mistake, right? I'm going to assume you're writing down, ooh, that was interesting. I noticed something that I hadn't noticed before, right? Uh, and so, uh, but just, just take some time, right? And, and let's hear First Peter in a way that maybe is like how some of the early communities in Asia Minor would have heard it when Sylvanus or some other letter carrier brought it to them and told it to them. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are chosen, the exiles in the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of the God and Father, by the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith, kept for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. In this, you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you are grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You have not seen him, but you love him. You, you do not see him now, and yet you trust him. And rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, that is, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the, the prophets who, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or, or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded Set your hope fully on the grace that will be yours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in, in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy since I am holy. And if you, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with awe throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you have been ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or, or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in the last days because of you who, through him, believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope 
are in God. Now, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, by the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander and like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, As you come to him, a living stone re rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever trusts in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is yours. That's for those who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I, I urge you as sojourners and, and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is God's will, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, you endure sufferings while well, you do sorrows while suffering unjustly. For, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
for to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore in his body our sins on the tree. That we might die to sin. But live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are like sheep strained. But now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, be subject to your husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives. That is, when they see your reverent and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair or the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, honoring them as fellow heirs of the gracious gift of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. And finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life or seek good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Have no fear of them, nor, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when they slander you, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, by which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with authorities and angels and powers having been subjected to him. If, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, 
arm yourselves with the same intent. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles like to do, living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness and orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised that you no longer join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, not only to the living, but also to the dead, that though judged in the way of humans, in the flesh, they might live in the way of God by the Spirit. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, for love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks, do so as though speaking the oracles of God. Whoever serves, do so by the strength which God supplies. And that way, in everything, God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because God's glorious spirit rests on you. But let no one suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? For if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will be the outcome for the ungodly and sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So then I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, as well as a partaker in the glories about to be revealed, shepherd your flock. Oh, no, no. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. In all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, 
the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Your fellow elect in Babylon sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So there's 1 Peter. All right, as you hear it, no, <laughs> as you hear it, I'm curious, right, if maybe you can, you can reflect back. What do you notice about this letter? What does it seem to be concerned with? What's that, the big picture? Okay, what, what is the big picture? What, what's the big picture you saw or heard? Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. The, the author, he wants to reframe their experience for them, right? They are going through something that has them so myopically focused on their situation that they need someone to pull them out, right, and, and get a sense of this big picture. No, there are things that have been promised that you can trust, right? And that maybe can give them some, some confidence as they're going through this. Yeah, anybody else? What, what did you hear? What did you notice? Okay. <laughs> I talk fast anyway, but yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Hope? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, hope is mentioned a couple times, right? Yeah, so there's the be ready to explain why you have hope, right? There's that pass, that passage there. And then it opens that way, right? It opens with saying we have, that, that, that God has caused us to be born again into a living hope. He opens with that. Now, why would he need to open with that unless there's some reasons that they may not be hopeful? Right, unless there's something happening where they need to be reminded, hang in there, hold on to hope. Right, he opens with that and, and comes back to it a couple of places. Yeah, I saw somebody had their hand up over here. Okay. Inheritance, right, those promises. Right, there are things, again, that God has promised to his people that, that Peter seems to want, wants to tell them, don't let go of that stuff. Right, hang on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't get the sense he's trying to tell them a lot of new stuff they don't already know, right? They can know this. They've heard this before. It's about, about uh, kind of putting down anchor in what you know to be true so that you can survive right? whatever, whatever you're going through at the present time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, if we leave suffering out, we've, we've missed something with the First Peter. There's a lot of discussion of suffering in First Peter, right? Whether it's Christ's suffering... Right? But it's, I think the reason he's talking so much, so much about the suffering of Christ is because he's writing to people who are in the midst of some kind of suffering. Right? And so to appeal to what happened to Christ right, is a way to encourage them. Right? It encourages them by saying, look, you're, you're not the first one to go through this. Right? There is someone who suffered before you, and if you're suffering, you, you know you're on the right track because you're following the one who suffered. Right? And because he suffered, you're not alone in that suffering. Right? So, yeah, there's a lot of discussion of, of suffering that I think clues us into there's something going on with the folks here that he's writing to. Right? And, and we've, got, we've got to grapple with that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, she's asking, is all suffering the same, right? And I think there's, there's an important thing. Suffering is not a good in and of itself, right? You don't go pursue suffering because, that's, because suffering is the good, right? Well, I think what, we, what we're seeing here is there is, a, there is a way of imitating Christ, right? Christ's pattern of a kind of open, self-emptying vulnerability. That's how Christ moved through the world. And when he moved through our broken world in that way, that meant suffering for him. And if we are to move through the world in that same kind of open, vulnerable, self-emptying way that imitates the pattern of Christ, that probably will mean suffering for us. Now, that's not because suffering is a good in and of itself to be, to be pursued. Right? In the age to come, when God has made all things right, we will be able to move through that world with, with open arms and vulnerable self-emptying, and we won't be met by harm, we'll be met by the others emptying themselves into us. That's the picture of flourishing that God has for his creation. That's what he wants, right? is that imitation of Christ. But we need to be prepared in the current brokenness right, that that might be met with suffering. All right, so I'm keeping our eye on, on our time here, and I want to respect that. So we're going to take, we're going to take a, a break here, but I'm hopeful that you got a sense Right, uh, from hearing Peter, of some of the things that are driving his concern. Right? He's writing to people who are suffering in some way. Right? And he's trying to speak to that and offer some consolation, some encouragement, some exhortation to folks who are suffering in some way. Right? Part of what that might cause us to reflect on is, what does this letter have to say to us? Right? Are there ways that we're like this audience uh, and then, if so, maybe we can hear that message being spoke to us as well. So we'll, we'll take a break and, and, and come back and continue digging into First Peter in a half hour. Thank you, Cliff, very much. Uh, yeah, you got 30 minutes. It's 4.30. At 5 o'clock, we'll begin promptly. And uh, be sure to refill, get something else to drink or eat or whatever until then. Take a restroom break. <laughs> <laughs> 